Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week is Dr. Jacob W. Wood, um, who's written To Stir a Restless Heart, Thomas Aquinas and Henri de Lubac on Nature, Grace, and the Desire for God with Catholic University Press. Dr. Wood is a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Um, in this conversation, we return to some common themes um, of, the, of our, the last several books that we've reviewed, um, including Aquinas and Grace, um, although in this uh, work, Dr. Wood explores those uh, themes in relationship to the desire for God, and especially with the influence of Aristotelian uh, philosophy and its entrance into the medieval conversation in the 13th century. Um, so just as a kind of um, broad introduction to this interview and just to tie th some um, strings together, um, Dr. Wood will present the, the influence of Aristotle on Christian thinking um, and, and how important his ideas were to the development of Western theology. Um, so this is a kind of... Um, uh, furthering the conversation that we started with Dr. Bearsma and Dr. Carey, who talked about the influence of Plato on early Christian thought. Um, and I'm really excited. Uh, the next interview that we're going to release is my conversation with Drew Johnson, who's going to add the idea of a Hebraic philosophy, um, drawing specifically on the biblical texts and the early Christian reception of uh, Hebraic and Jewish thought in Paul. Um, so, that that looks to be like a really good conversation and and i hope tying these themes together throughout our podcasts gives it a little bit of a connective uh tissue because um, these are all questions that are near to dear to my heart as a undergrad philosophy major and a uh, theologian who's interested in uh, exactly how the great doctrines uh, of the church came to be as they were and and who our uh, theologians were in conversation with and how they understood their task um, so I think this is a great addition to that whole conversation. Dr. Wood is uh, very learned, very knowledgeable, and very clear um, in his presentation of Aquinas uh, in this uh, conversation, and even gets into a little bit of the insights of Henri de Lubac at the very end of our conversation. So um, I heard from a few of you who were gra grateful to hear Tom and Trevor were back, um, so happy to, to um, get them on. We will have a, a more conversations with them, um, but uh, yeah those will be forthcoming uh, in in the following semester so uh, thank you for listening uh, as always uh, please do uh, tweet at us uh, like us on facebook twitter review us on itunes it helps other people find the podcast we really appreciate it thanks for listening and here's my conversation with dr wood this morning on a history of Christian theology, I have with me uh, Dr. Jacob Wood. Uh, Dr. Jacob Wood is the associate professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, um, and I believe this is the second printing of "To Stir a Restless Heart." Is that right? That's right. All right. So we're um, uh, Catholic University Press uh, graciously provided me a copy of "To Stir a Restless Heart," Thomas Aquinas and Henri de Lubac on nature, grace, and the desire for God. Um, it's now in paperback uh, because, you know, it's just one of those uh, uh, fast-moving theological texts on dense uh, medieval theological issues. Uh, you, people just can't uh, get enough of it, I guess. It's, uh, it, it, I, I'm very humbled that at least some people spent their corona tide reading through about 500 pages of medieval theology. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it's, I mean, I found it immensely um, uh, clear and lucid um, and carefully argued. Very good. I, I appreciated the, um, in fact, the, the historical um, settings. Um, so it's, it's helpful to just see what's going on in the various places where Aquinas is teaching um, and to sort of get a sense of, okay, this is who he would have been talking to. This is what was going on around him. These are the texts that were influencing um, him at the time from Aristotle or commentaries on Aristotle. And then uh, Dr. Wood would launch into, uh, you know, what exactly Aquinas was saying on the topics, nature, grace, and the desire for God. So it's a very clear and helpful text in that way, just to kind of get a, a, a broad brushstroke at the beginning and then dive into the particular issue. Um, so, you know, I mean, as far as uh, difficult texts or, or texts on difficult issues, uh, it was very lucidly argued. So, um, yeah, so I, I really appreciate it and, uh, and appreciate uh, Dr. Wood uh, taking the time to talk with me this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. 
All right. So um, as I've already just stated, uh, and the 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 book basically looks at three different topics and and how they are related. They are namely nature, um, primarily human nature, uh, grace, and what that does to our nature, and how that helps us uh, attain the uh, attain God, our desire for God, the beatific vision. Um, so he takes these sort of three major ideas and traces them. Uh, well, really starting from Augustine, um, but then uh, primarily through Peter Lombard, uh, then as Aristotle makes his way into uh, the medieval uh, universities, uh, he looks a little bit at how uh, Aquinas understands those. So I've asked uh, Dr. Wood to just begin by maybe telling us a little bit about like why those three topics, what do those mean? Um, and what are we what are we trying to get at when looking at nature, grace and the desire for God? Thank you. I'll try to be I'll try to be as succinct as I can. But like I say in the book, um, these have been hot topics for about 700 years in the, in the history <laughs> of the church's theological tradition. So because um, they really sit at the nexus of so many other questions. Um, when we're talking about human nature, we're talking about what it is to be human, what it is, you know, uh, to to experience life on this earth as a human being and everything that that entails. And so it sits at the nexus of all these questions that we ask about how we relate to God, how we think about God, how we talk about God, how we yearn for God. And you know, then, then these questions also sit at the nexus of the question of grace. So how does, how does God relate to us? How are we raised up into friendship with God? How are we healed from the sin which keeps us away from God? Um, and the desire for God, going all the way back to Augustine, really pokes at all those questions. Because for Augustine, as far back, you know, as the Confessions, Confessions Book One, you know, Lord, you've made us for ourselves, yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That the experience of being a human being before God on this earth is really constituted by that question of the desire for God. Mm-hmm. And so, over the course of the theological tradition. You know, there's been a lot of speculation as to where that desire leads, how it leads us to God, right? And this gets bound up with the question of, you know, what does it mean to live individually on this earth before God? Um, it, it, it branches out into the political question of what does it mean to be a human society on this earth before God? And so the way that one sorts out these questions and the way that people have sorted out these questions in the history of the theological tradition. I mean, it gets you into faith and reason. Um, it gets you into sin and grace. It gets you into church and state. Um, it really sits, like I said, at the, at the central nexus of a whole bunch of very, very important questions and also very controversial questions. So you can see why it would, it would, it would give fodder for, um, some healthy and at times unhealthy theological debates for so many hundreds of years without ever really losing steam. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, so there we go. So nature, grace, and the desire for God. Um, so, uh, my next question, uh, as a way to think about earlier thinkers in your study. So you go through Peter Lombard, um, and, uh, then, then commentaries on, um, on, uh, Aristotle, I'm gonna, I'm going to mix up Aquinas, Aristotle, Avicenna, Averroes, so many A names. Uh, Augustine, there's a few. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you say something about this sort of the means of teaching philosophy and theology in the mid, uh, medieval world? Uh, one thing people might not be familiar with is the importance of Peter Lombard's sentences and then the commentary on those sentences. So why sure. why is this so critical for medieval thinkers? Sure. So uh, I actually want to back it up to just a little bit before Peter Lombard and say because all of medieval theology is really it it, it really exists for the purpose of communion with God and fostering communion with God in the world, especially through sacred scripture and through the sacraments. And so the teaching of theology is kind of situated on that almost monastic trajectory between the contemplation of the word of God and communion with Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. Mm. And so all the way back as far as the beginning of the 12th century uh, in the school of Laom, you have a pattern of theological education developing where 
you begin by reading the word of God. You begin by reading sacred scripture and reflecting on it. Then bringing in the tradition to bear on whatever biblical text you're reading, allowing theological questions to kind of bubble up and bubble over from that reading, and then trying to resolve those questions. Now, the point of doing all of that was that all of that was ultimately ordered not towards an end in itself, like an academic end in itself, but to the preaching of the word of God and the salvation of souls. And so whereas, you know, the the particulars of that could change and develop as you move out of the cathedral schools into the university. That same basic shape held, and it's summarized um, in the famous trio of Lexio, Disputatio, and Predicatio, reading or lecture on a, on, a, on a particular text, disputation, where you try to resolve questions that arise over that text, and then the preaching of the word of God, to which the discussion and dis the, the reading and the, the disputation over that text was always ordered. So, Peter Lombard's sentences arose out of the practice of disputatio. Mm. Because as people had been doing this for several decades, I mean, they raised, they, sometimes you keep bumping into the same kinds of questions over and over again, um, and you raise a lot of them. So folks started to write them down, and they would write down the answers. And so, you know, from these disputations would arrive, arrive uh, excuse me, arise these written products, which we call sume, which is the plural summa. As you know, so um, and Peter Lombard's book of sentences was one of those. The thing about Peter Lombard's book of sentences, though, is that it was so well done. It was so comprehensive. It was so insightful that it kind of came to a place of prominence of its own authority just for being such a well done text. Now, not that it resolved every question. Oftentimes it raises more questions than it resolves. But neither did, say, Augustine resolve every question that he ever asked, and he became the center of the Western theological tradition and arguably still is. So um, in the beginning of the 13th century, as the influence of Peter Lombard's sentences began to pick up steam, folks would were already beginning to write commentaries on the text um, of Peter Lombard's sentences. And admittedly, there was a little tension here. There were people who got frustrated with the idea that people were commenting on the text of the sentences instead of sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. But the idea behind the sentences commentary was always that it led back to sacred scripture. So Bonaventure in his sentences commentary, you know, has this uh, beautifully Aristotelian way of putting it. He says the sentences are subalternated to scripture. So in, 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 13th century uh, Aristotelianism, that, that process of subalternation, that idea, excuse me, of subalternation is, you know, when one science receives its principles from a higher science, you know, so like physics receives its principles from math and engineering from physics and so on and so forth. And so Bonaventure says that the sentences are subordinated to scripture. The idea basically being that the sentences should eventually erase themselves. As you've disputed mm -hmm. the questions on scripture, Okay, when you, once you've resolved them, you should move into the preaching of the Word of God. Yeah. Um, but in the in the, thir in the over the course of the 13th century, these sentences commentaries really did take on a life of their own, and you can see them if you if you dive into them. And I would recommend any student of medieval theology spend time with the sentences commentaries. You can see how that would take place. Well, one person writes a commentary on the sentences. The next guy comes along to write a commentary on the sentences. And he's got the other guy's commentary on the sentences, so now he's got all those questions. And the next guy comes, and eventually you develop multi-layers. So by the end of the 13th century, see these sentences, commentaries, they, could, they couldn't hardly usually get through an entire one. Because what you would say on each question, you'd now have to deal with so much material. And I think that that's something that any uh, doctoral student in theology today can relate to. <laughs> you pick a theological question, and even just to deal with the literature that's bubbled up in the last 10, 20, 30 years feels like a lot. And it's the same thing in 13th century Paris. The difference is that, you know, their, like I said, their academic endeavors were really fundamentally rooted in the spiritual project of searching out communion with God in the world through their academic labors, contemplating Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. And I'd, I'd like to say that that's one way in which they can challenge us today is to always take these questions back to our spiritual lives and back to the evangelizing mission uh, of the church. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. Um, yeah, that yeah, the when you put put that uh, tripartite lectio disputatio praedicatio, I, I thought, well, that you know, that definitely makes sense. Um, and it, it's helpful to remember uh, that that that's ultimately what all of this is geared towards. And I guess one of the things about the introduction of Aristotle into the universities and why there was some hubbub about that is because it felt like maybe maybe everybody everything was being relegated just to disputatio. Uh, right. So if you have and people were just kind of doing philosophy and they weren't doing theology, they weren't ultimately uh, subalternating it back to scripture or they weren't uh, taking the next step of going into praedicatio or evangelizing. They they weren't trying to make the next move. It was the dispute. It seems almost like under the influence of, of certain writers and commentators on Aristotle that maybe, uh, you know, it was just disputatio for disputatio's sake. Yeah, you do end up seeing that, um, especially at the end of the 13th century, as, you know, instead of the sentences commentary, the quadlibital question becomes the sort of preferred um, method of doing theology by the end of the 1200s. Um, it, you know, frankly, the sentences commentaries had got so complicated by that point, it was just easier to resolve things in a disputed question. Um, but actually, going back to the beginning of the 13th century, and this is something I deal with um, a little bit uh, at the beginning of the book, you you know, you, you have the introduction of more Aristotelian learning into the university, and almost immediately a problem arises. Now, the problem at the beginning of the 13th century is not what Aristotle is saying, per se. It's the fact that people are so fascinated by this new material, most of which is philosophical, that they just spent too much time do, you know, studying it that they started to neglect their other duties. So the parish priests were neglecting preaching, the monks were neglecting their Lectio Divina. And so whereas sometimes you get this sense in, the, in today's academic literature that the church was like really closed off to Aristotle because it was somehow, you know, the Aristotelian learning was threatening, you know, Christian beliefs. That's just not true. Um, it was more the case that folks were just so over-interested in this stuff that they were spending all their time studying it and neglecting their other duties. That's not to say that there weren't times at which philosophical ideas were found to be, that were, that were coming, into, um, coming into vogue were found to be difficult to reconcile with Christian theology. So there's tension as the 13th century rolls on about um, Avicenna and divine illumination. Uh, in the 1230s and 40s, there's tension about uh, Averroes and um, the relationship between the soul and the body or the, or the question of the eternity of the world in the 1260s and 70s, um, ultimately leading to the condemnation in, uh, condemnations of 1270 and 1277. Okay, but really, you know, by and large, Christian thinkers were very, very passionately open to the incorporation of all this new learning that was being made available to them at the beginning of the 13th century. So one of the things I point out in the book is that, you know, we hear so much about in, in, in medieval theology about the so-called condemnations of Aristotle, 1210, 1215, uh, and, and 1231. But if you read them carefully, right, the, the earlier ones have this kind of pastoral rationale behind them. We want to we want to bring it back and focus our attention on moving from the word of God to the preaching of the word of God. And actually, the last one isn't really a condemnation at all. It's part of a, an administrative and bureaucratic process of opening up the universities to the study of Aristotle. So one of the things that I that I show in the book is that in that period from 1231 onward. Um, because the University of Paris had been closed from 1229 to 1231, it would have been foolish for them to really restrict the study of Aristotle. They wouldn't have had any students. Students were going other places to study, to study these works that they wanted to study. They were actually opening up in a really major way to the study of all of these different texts. And, you, and if you actually sit down and read the text from the 1230s and 1240s, you see that that's exactly what they're doing. They're wrestling with the questions being raised by these philosophical texts but now in a way that doesn't distract from the evangelizing mission that theology is supposed to be ordered to, but in a way that they're attempting to, 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 to direct this now towards that mission. 
Yeah, we had my uh, friend Ben Winter, uh, who talks, uh, who wrote on Bonaventure for his dissertation, and he talks yes. a lot about what you were just describing in terms of it's not that Bonaventure was anti-Aristotle, um, it's or philosophy altogether. It's just that he always wanted it geared towards the proper ends, as you were just saying, the proper ends of yeah. preaching the word and and uh, communion with God. Um, right. And so he was, you know, and which was which was interesting again, like, you know, my my primary focus has been earlier than this, uh, but I, I learned a lot from Ben. So I suggest uh, listeners go check out that episode if you want to lean more on Bonaventure, because we're about to lead back towards uh, Aristotle here before or excuse me, Aquinas uh, before long. Um, and again, my apologies for mixing up the A names. Um but one thing this made me uh, made me think about a little bit. So we've been talking a lot about the influence of of Aristotle here, and it's not that there was no Aristotle prior to the the early 13th centuries. It was just that more and more texts were becoming available. Um, but one one phrase that's become popular in, in theological circles recently is Christian Platonism, um, and and it sort of made a kind of there's kind of a revival of interest in the influence of Plato. Which you know I think is is beneficial in a lot of ways. I would say I you know we had Hans Bersma on. He talked a lot about Christian Platonism. Uh, Philip Carey was on the show, and he has his sort of his criticisms of elements of Christian Platonism. But could we talk about a Christian Aristotelianism? Um, is is it uh, should, or you know wherever we want to put the emphasis, you know, or or an Aristotelian Christianity or something? I don't know. Um, however, yeah. we want to deal with those back and forths. Like so, you know, so for the 13th century. Is it more Aristotle than it is Plato? Um, and to what extent are any of these kind of, uh, you know, mixes and matches helpful with philosophers um, and the term Christianity? Wow, such a big question. I'm, I'm going to do my best here. So let's let's start by making some distinctions. So we can start with the question of to what extent are people reading the texts of Plato versus getting Platonic thought. Uh, mediated through other thinkers. So the texts of Plato themselves are not are not always circulating as widely as, say, the texts of Aristotle are, are coming to circulate. So when we talk about a Christian Platonism, we're ye in the 13th century, we're usually talking about a sort of general Platonic outlook on the world, on God, and on the spiritual life. But that's mediated through folks like Augustine. You know, he, he looms large for all of these discussions. Um, uh, the the neo the Christian Neoplatonic tradition, so texts like Pseudo Dionysius, which were extremely authoritative for theologians uh, in by the by the time of the mid twelfth century and then on through into the thirteenth century, we're looking at you know various forms of Arabic Neoplatonism. Um, and even at that, by the time you start talking about Arabic Neoplatonism, I mean, what you're really talking about is just philosophy, right? You know, people will say, like, all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. And in some respects, that's true. I mean, these, these traditions take on a life of their own as, as thinking about the same questions continues down through the ages. Um, and then when you talk about the same thing is, is true when you talk about Aristotelianism. You know, we can talk about the reading of the texts of Aristotle. So, um, and, and those are becoming more and more available over the course of the 13th century, although, you know, that that process continues down all the way into the work of, say, William of Murbecca in the, in the, in the 1260s. In particular, he's, he's generating a lot of texts that Aquinas is using, so, but that's very late in Aquinas' career. We can talk about um, Aristotelians in the Christian tradition, and there's different avenues that this takes to get into the 13th century. So, um, people don't always realize that um, a lot, a fair bit of Christian Aristotelianism found its way into the 13th century through the work of John Damascene, because um, Damascene's relying on Maximus the Confessor. Maximus the Confessor's mm -hmm. got a fair bit of Aristotelian um, uh, thought that he's that he's working with, and so this is like this back door to Aristotelianism <laughs> through Damascene in the in the 12th century, which is why, it, well, it's in part why when Aristotle really you know, drops in the begin towards the beginning of the 13th century, the seedbed's already been prepared a little bit through through the yeah. work of Damascene, um, through reflections on that. And then we can talk about you know the the Arabic Aristotelians who are you know I, I called them neo Arabic Neoplatonists before, um, but Aristotle also looms large in the Arabic tradition as well. So you have that tension between more Neoplatonic texts like the Libra de Causis, um, 
And then more Aristotelian texts like um, you find in the work of Avicenna or Verowees, when they're, especially when they're commenting directly on the text of Aristotle. So the whole question of Christian Platonism versus Christian Aristotelianism is this complex coming to terms with in the 13th century with all of these different sources. And so it's hard to say, well, one person's a Platonist and one person's an Aristotelian. I mean, we can talk about Bonaventure, for whom Plato is extremely important, and, and, and he does reference Plato directly, because Bonaventure thought a lot about formal causality and the relationship between the divine ideas and creation, right? And the divine ideas, um, in a way, pointing us specifically to the wisdom of God and to Jesus Christ as the word of God as ultimately the formal exemplar cause of all of creation. Um, that sounds really platonic. On the other hand, we have to remember that Bonaventure went through the entire um, standard course of study at the University and was, of Paris and was very well versed in 13th century Aristotelianism. Or we can talk about somebody like Thomas Aquinas, you know, um, yeah. who's the focus of the book, where obviously Aquinas is, is wrestling with and, and appropriating a number of different Aristotelian ideas. But on the other hand, not to the exclusion of things that you know he's getting from Augustine, Pseudo Dionysius, etc. And in many ways, when you look at nature, grace, and the desire for God, these three topics that I'm dealing with, I would say that it's hard to pin Aquinas down on you know, oh, he's just Platonist or he's just Aristotelian, because ultimately I think what he's trying to do is integrate what he's receiving from this these from his encounter with Aristotelian texts into the Augustinian tradition where Plato had been so very, um, so very influential. And so one of the things I talk about at the, towards the beginning of the book is when you look at the conversation that Aquinas is really jumping into, that's what it's a conversation about. We have this kind of Christian Platonism through Augustine looking at um, purgation and spiritual ascent and the question of the desire for God and how it leads us um, ultimately to the beatific vision. And, and, and there's, you know, the way that Augustine thinks about nature, which is just how God made us. So God made us with grace. Great. Then when he says, when, when, when Augustine's talking about what's natural, he's thinking, well, it's natural for us to have grace because that was God's intention for us when he made us. And now we're going to put that intention with an Aristotelian understanding of nature, which is teleological which looks at our powers and looks at the ends towards which they're ordered and tries to deduce from them, or rather induce, the nature, um, the, the ends towards which our nature is ordered. And so going back to Philip the Chancellor in the 1230s and then carry on forward to Aquinas in the 1250s and then all throughout Aquinas's career, we're really trying to figure out, is there a way that we can integrate these two approaches to what it means to be a human person? And then how do we sort out the entire nexus of questions that arises when we try to do that about the gratuity of grace, the integrity of human nature um, in itself, you know, the question of natural goodness versus supernatural goodness, the question of to what extent sin corrupts natural goodness or doesn't corrupt natural goodness. All these kinds of questions are in play for the 13th century thinkers, and they're kind of trying to sort them out as time goes on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's immensely helpful. And as someone who, again, specializes a little bit earlier, we ha well, uh, this came up with uh, Ben Heigerken, who wrote on Maximus the Confessor, uh, but but are even Stoic ideas that were influential on uh, Maximus. And so it's also sort of interesting to just think about, you know, trying to use one of these labels, Platonist, uh, Aristotelian, Stoic. Um, usually they, they didn't want to be called Epicurean of any sort, uh, but, uh, even though, even, even though some of, but, but, you know, that's kind of like what's in the firmament, I guess one could say, or what's sort of in the water, in the air, um, of, of the like patristic period is all of these ideas are kind of all mixed up, mixed together. Um, and it's even hard to sort out, uh, you know, where exactly is it coming from? And I think your question or point about, you know, what exactly are they referencing is not even as it's not even necessary to like point out exactly what they read just because a lot of these ideas become merged um, yeah. and and they're being used uh, at, at various ways by various people. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a it, it's a complex tradition. And I think, you know, we we tend in our minds, it's always easy to frame something 
in a, in a, in a simple dichotomy. So it's, it's Platonist or it's Aristotelian. It's Franciscan or it's Dominican. Um, and one of the things that I learned as I was doing the research for this book is how important it is to just take a big eraser, erase all those dichotomies from our mind, <laughs> and just try as best we can to piece together the conversation that they were actually having. Yeah. Now, it's true. If you go into the end of the 13th century, so after Aquinas is dead in 1274, you'll get the, 12, late 12, the mid to late 1270s and the 1280s, some of these dichotomies do start to kind of firm up because people intentionally start to identify with one or another approach to theology, Franciscan or Dominican, uh, Augustinian or Aristotelian. And these distinctions start to firm up. So you, you think of somebody like Godfrey of Fontaine, who is pretty intentionally Aristotelian, versus somebody like Henry of Ghent, who is pretty intentionally Augustinian. Um, so you, you, you start to see these distinctions after Aquinas is dead. But we have a habit, and I say we, like scholars have a habit yeah. of reading those kind of dichotomies back into the middle of the 13th century where they don't belong. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the things I point out in the book is that if you go, if you want to just look at Aquinas on his own terms, in his own life, and you look at his commentary on the sentences when he becomes a student at the University of Paris, a Bachelor of the Sentences, what I found, and I found it more and more subsequently, is that when Aquinas was commenting on the sentences, he was basically using Bonaventure's commentary on the sentences as an index to what was going on at Paris. Because if you, if you really think about Aquinas' life, he turns up in Paris in 1252 and he's expected to lecture on the sentences, and he had never, ever heard a complete commentary on the sentences before in his life. And just like let that sink in, because we talked a little bit earlier about how this conversation about the sentences had picked up steam already by Aquinas' time. There were many layers to the Parisian conversation, so he's just supposed to jump in, and if, you know, he's, maybe he's only heard lectures on a couple of books. So Bonaventure had been in Paris for so many years, he knew the whole tradition. Aquinas is basically using him as, as a handy index to get to right. jump into this conversation that he was n not necessarily ever fully part of before. And that means that there's this, just, just this tremendous cross-pollination between Christian Platonism and Christian Aristotelianism, if we want to use those terms, between Franciscan theology and Dominican theology, if we want to use that distinction. Um, it's really one conversation throughout a lot of Aquinas' life that only becomes bifurcated, you know, around the time of the end of his career and after his death. Right. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's very helpful. Um, you know, move just kind of moving on. We can, we don't have to spend much time on this. Uh, my one of my questions, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading through this, uh, just is the uh, influence of uh, Muslim and Jewish uh, commentaries on Aristotle, and as a kind of interesting interfaith dialogue, you could say, except for sort of interfaith dialogue around Aristotle, I guess. Uh, but it, it just sort of was interesting how, um, how that the, the, just that fact, like some people might think, you know, medieval period, closed minded, dark ages, whatever. Uh, but it's always important to, to remember that, you know, it was, it was through Islam and uh, through uh, other Jewish commentaries in Spain uh, that, that we have a really good idea of what uh, Aristotle's thinking and Aquinas is reading some of these people as well to get a better handle on what uh, what he thinks Aristotle's doing before he makes his move uh, towards the, the, the you know his sort of <clears throat> theological moves on them. So I, if anything you want to sort of speak to on that, like I said, I don't want to make too much of it, but it was just it was just interesting. Well, I think that actually you know what Aquinas is doing really challenges us challenges us um, in our own contemporary cultural moment today. If you look at the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentiles, and Aquinas is talking about um, how you go about ha carrying on a theological discussion with somebody, right? And he says, well, any theological discussion has to take place on the basis of shared principles. So if you're if you're talking to somebody of um, you know another Christian uh, Christian community. Well, you, you share principles based upon the Old and New Testament. So you can have arguments based upon the whole of sacred scripture. If you're talking to a member of the Jewish people, 
Well, you share a common faith in the Old Testament. So you can have a theological argument based upon the text of the Old Testament. And then Aquinas says, well, what if you're talking to somebody who doesn't share belief in a common text with you? And he says, well, such a person nevertheless shares a common nature with you, right? We're mm -hmm. all human beings, and we all have within ourselves a human intellect. And that human intellect is illumined by God with the first principles of speculative reasoning. And so we all, wherever we take our thought subsequently, we all have a similar starting point. We have the first principles of speculative reasoning in our minds, and we have uh, an encounter with the creation that God has made in our bodies. And so on that basis of having the same nature, having minds that are illumined with the same principles, and being at work and being reflective in the same world, we can have a common conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's on that basis that Aquinas says in the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentiles that we should, we can even begin our discussions with people that don't share any faith with us at all. And so that provided the kind of that outlook provided Aquinas with a strong reason to just go ahead and read and engage with and to devour learning from wherever he could find it, from whomever he could find it. Um, there's a real humanism of learning that that engenders. Mm -hmm. But I think that challenges us today because with the identity politics that have taken over so much of our cultural and, and now it's becoming more and more taking over our academic discourse, I don't think that as a culture we believe that anymore. Right. That, that there are common principles of reasoning in our nature, that there are common experiences in the world that allow us to have a common conversation with people of different groups, different cultures, and different experiences. We're kind of locked now, or we're getting locked in these power struggles between different ideological groups. And Aquinas challenges us to remember that we're all, we're all, we're all members of the same human nature. And we can, all have a, we can all have a shared conversation based upon that nature. And that's a message I think that our culture and our world really needs to hear. Are you looking to make a meaningful, lifelong connection with someone who shares your beliefs? If so, then you've got to try Christian Mingle. With over 15 million Christian singles, Christian Mingle is unlike any other faith-based dating site. Their ability to help members make quality connections is what sets them apart. They have robust profiles and personalization features that help you connect with other like-minded members. Plus, their suite of communication tools help you meet more people and make deeper connections. Finding your true love is one of life's great adventures, so discover why so many Christian singles find love at christianmingle.com history. That's christianmingle.com history. Yeah. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. I, yeah, that's uh, well, well said. Um, all right. So is, this is my, uh, this is my shift gears hard, uh, question, but my, uh, this was sort of my fun question that I've, I've been asking now for a little bit. Uh, but, uh, what, what is one major idea or truth, uh, that you either once thought was false and now think is true or now <laughs> think, uh, is, uh, or, or you once thought was uh, true, but now think is false. And it could be something <clears throat> you learned in the course of the research, um, or it could just be something sort of funny in your life. I had someone say that it had to do about where they went to college or something and about whether or not they could ever like hockey, I think. Um, it was, but, but, um, I, which I, I grew up playing ice hockey. So, um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, there you go. You can take that in whatever direction you like, uh, something yeah. that, that you once thought was true and now think is false or once thought was false and now think is true. Yeah. So I think I want to answer this question. I want to bring it back to the book and talk about the natural desire for God, because there's uh, in my own in my own thinking about this question and reading about this question and praying about this question. I've been through a lot of different stages in my own thinking. Um, when I first came at the question, it was through reading um, reading the work of de Lubac, Augustinianism and Modern Theology, Mystery of the Supernatural. And when you first encounter de Lubac, it's it's intoxicating. He is such a good writer, and he knows the Christian tradition so well, and he writes with such rhetorical forcefulness that you kind of get caught up in it. You get <laughs> caught up in the argument. And so when I first came at the question, it was like, yes, I see exactly what he's saying. 
you know, we've got this desire for the beatific vision. And what's the, what's with all these Thomists who are who are trying to distract us from that and creating a secular world? And then as I went through graduate school and I got more familiar with the Thomistic tradition, I flip flopped the other way. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, wait, what's with these Lubakians trying to destroy the gratuity of nature and all the all the, the all the important insights that Aquinas has brought to bear on our understanding of human nature, the integrity of human nature? And then that branches out into other questions like the integrity of human reason, the integrity of uh, human societies apart from the church. There's that whole church-state angle as well. But then again, there, there was a third stage for me, which was when I was writing this book. And I set myself this challenge of saying, okay, you know, at the, at the beginning of Lawrence Feingold's book, he says, well, there's all these different texts of Aquinas on the natural desire for God. And they're really difficult to reconcile because they seem to say, at times, contradictory things. And nobody had yet at that point taken up the challenge of trying to figure out historically why that was. And so Feingold does an unparalleled job at going through the Thomistic commentators and looking at how many hundreds of years of Thomists have tried to sort out those questions. But I wanted to set for myself the challenge of figuring out why those texts of Aquinas, historically, why do they lie the way that they do mm -hmm. at different points in his career? Why do they say the things that they say? Why do they make the moves they make? And why do they at times seem to contradict themselves? And so I, what I wanted to do was tell the story of Aquinas as a human thinker. And so here's another thing. When I, when I began the study of Aquinas um, for myself, I would say that as much as I was historically attuned, I still had within me the, the seeds of that very common attitude, you know, sanctus tomos semper uh, loquitur formaliter. Right. It's like Thomas has, Thomas always speaks formally. He has this this perfect insight into Christian wisdom that just pours forth onto every page. And he just says the same thing over and over again, you know, maybe a little bit more in depth here or in depth there. But he kind of always speaks like somebody who's got it all put together. But what I encountered in the writing of this book was Thomas, the humble saint who's trying to think these questions out over the course of his career and who actually, you know, had he and I went through a similar experience that to the one that he did in the beginning of his career. He was thinking in a very much Aristotelian way about human nature, that we have a natural desire of uh, that our human powers are ordered towards this natural knowledge and natural love of God. But that over the course of Aquinas' career, he became more and more Augustinian. And he tried to use this Aristotelian learning to explain the Augustinian Latin Christian experience of the world. And so for myself, I kind of went on that journey with Aquinas, and I ended in the same place that I think Aquinas ended, uh, which is when he, he came to see that our natural desire for God isn't just for um, naturally achievable goods, but it also isn't like a straight shot to the beatific vision, like de Lubach would, 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 would kind of leave you with the impression that he was saying. It's something altogether different. Aquinas basically says that Augustine's desire for happiness, if you want to evaluate that in Aristotelian terms, is a is natural desire for the fulfillment of our potency, our potential, insofar as is possible. So if God were to take us and just kind of leave us as human creatures with that, we would take it as far as we could, the natural knowledge of God and the natural love of God. And that gives us a way to start thinking about what is human nature in itself, what can human nature achieve in itself, and what can human society achieve in itself. Um, it gives us a way to think about the integrity of nature. But that if God chooses to give us grace, that transforms our desire because it makes more things possible for us in a concrete sense. It makes the, the theological virtues possible for us, and it makes the beatific vision possible for us. So that same desire, which is seeking for the, for, for the fulfillment of our potential insofar as possible, carries us now under the influence of grace transformed 
all the way to the beatific vision. And I think that in that way, Aquinas describes with really penetrating philosophical insight what Augustine encountered, and you know, all the way back as far as the confessions, that our hearts are restless until they rest in God, and we're born with this desire that can only be fulfilled by God, but we're not born knowing where that desire is ultimately fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, that's, yeah, very good. Very well said. Um, so, uh, I'll, you know, as I was, uh, as I was learning to think with Aquinas throughout your work, uh, it was interesting to hear your description of Thomas's ability to be concerned with one, what, what one might call philosophical errors or theological errors, uh, and mm -hmm. trying to get, make his system make sense. So without, you know, with avoiding pitfalls on either side. And uh, I, I think it's attributed to Erasmus, but, you know, sometimes people will say that medieval theology is uh, angels dancing on the head of a pin, or <laughs> trying to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Like I said, I think I've heard that that's actually Erasmus who was the first one to say that. And it's a joke, of course. Uh, but, um, you know, but what I, like I said, as I, as I was, uh, as I was sort of following you along explaining uh, Aquinas, I kept thinking of it as, as a craftsman fine-tuning his understanding. Um, so could you say something uh, just about what it's like to learn to think with uh, Aquinas about these questions uh, of nature, grace, and the desire for God, and how he kind of works through uh, sort of his th problematic uh, philosophical errors and then maybe theological errors, uh, and, and even that dichotomy between philosophy and theology uh, was sort of interesting because it's all within the mind and thinking of one man. Like, so, you know, in some sense we could call it philosophical and some sense we could call it theological, but actually, you know, that that's just one way, a sort of shorthand because he was still trying to just make one coherent argument um, right. and really one coherent, ultimately one coherent understanding of God. Yeah. So I think the first thing I want to say is that just in that very endeavor, Aquinas offers us something today that we sorely need um, in theology. I think theology today has become extremely apophatic. And, in, in, and look, apophaticism is great, and it has its place, and it's important because we always have to remember that we, you know, God is always more not what we say than he is what we say. Right. He always he always stands beyond our own um, formulations. But you can take that too far in a direction that basically suggests that we're never going to say anything true about God, um, that the contemplation of God, whereas it may make us love more, doesn't make us know more. Mm -hmm. And I think across the board in the 13th century and in Aquinas, especially, we see something different. We see we see a profound reflection on the fact that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And that one of the gifts that God offers us, especially through you know, the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is the gift of wisdom. Now, Aquinas is careful to distinguish the wisdom that we gain through theological study from the infused gift of wisdom. But it's still wisdom that we gain in theological study. It's still a deeper and more penetrating understanding of things that are true about God, about God's action in the world, and about God's action in our very own lives. So I think what Aquinas was doing, what the medievals were doing in general, um, was trying in, in many ways to just get a better understanding of God and about of his action in the world and of his action in our lives. And and the reason that they expended so much academic energy on this is because they thought that at the end of the day, there was a payout from that. And it wasn't just that they learned to love God better, but that they learned to know God better too. Because the better you know someone, the more you can love them. So I think that what you see in Aquinas is somebody who works on these questions so carefully and so, so delicately. Because he believes that what he's doing is bringing him closer to God. And he offers us in that a model of growing closer to God through theological study. And so seen in that light, you're absolutely right. You know, Aquinas, he, he thinks about these, which seem to us almost minute issues, very carefully. But I love the image you brought of a craftsman. You know, think of somebody crafting a marble statue. Right? It's a huge, massive work, and yet they have to spend a lot of time chiseling away a little bit over here, 
a little bit over there. Otherwise, it doesn't look as beautiful. Otherwise, it doesn't image what it's supposed to image as well. And I think that Aquinas is doing something just like that with the natural desire for God. He's honing it. He's chipping away at it over the course of his career because he thinks that thinking about this is going to lead him closer to Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Now, in Aquinas' own life, you know, it wasn't just like he started with a general idea, though, and moved into some, you know, and just gradually made it more specific. There were, there were some big turning points in his life. And in that, we see Aquinas the saint, who has intellectual humility, who's not afraid to say occasionally, hey, I was wrong, or hey, I missed something, and to make some big changes in his thought either. So in the book, I identify, you know, there's, there's several stages. I couldn't, I couldn't go through all of them here on the podcast today, but I'll just make some generalizations. So the first one I mentioned is at the beginning of his career, which looks very, very Aristotelian when he talks about how we have this natural desire um, we have a natural desire that moves to the natural knowledge of God, and we have what he calls a natural appetite, a passive openness to the beatific vision. By the Summa Contra Gentiles, he's talking about, he's, he's connecting up the dots between that natural desire and that natural appetite, saying the natural desire is a desire for the fulfillment of our passive potential insofar as possible. But then as you move forward in his career, that synthesis starts to break down. And the way it starts to break down is through Aquinas' thinking about the relationship between the intellect and the will. Because, you know, that, that initial synthesis, I mean, it's beautiful when you see it in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Aquinas gives like this entire, entire um, system of how God illumines the agent intellect, the agent intellect uh, illumines the, the potential intellect, the potential intellect arrives at the judgment of, uh, under, under, has a natural desire for knowledge, and it arrives at judgments through that natural, through the fulfillment of that natural desire for knowledge. Those judgments um, are the final cause of the motion and the will, and then the will commands the other powers in the soul. It's this beautiful system, top to bottom, he's got it all worked out. Until... He starts uh, reading some of these new translations of Aristotle that are coming out from William of Merbecca. And in Merbecca's translation of the De Anima, it talks about how the, the, the appetible object, the, the object itself, moves the will. And that the will can be moved either when that object is presented to it by the intellect or when that object is presented to it by the senses. And so now that beautiful system, that beautiful intellectualist system starts to break down. And then I talk about in the book how there's a controversy over, oh, Aquinas develops a new way of approaching the motion of the will, but there's a controversy over that at the University of Paris, and he has to shift again in 1270 after the condemnation of intellectual determinism. And now he starts saying that actually the, the relationship between the intellect and the will is a little bit different, that God actually moves the will directly. Um, by, a, by a kind of instinctus is the word, an inner prompting he moves the will. And so Aquinas now again, you know, he, he, he through humility has to kind of rework a lot of his system to, to, to deal with this complex fact that God both illumines the intellect and moves the will. And then he does these things simultaneously. So now he starts saying that the, the intellect is not so much the final cause of the will's motion, but the formal cause, but that the will itself is moved directly by God and that our natural desire is prompted directly by God through the will. And so Aquinas kind of, if you, if you look at Aquinas, the human being, searching for wisdom, trying to grow closer to Christ, you see him over the course of his career engaging in this journey, which has all the pieces of the spiritual life. Sometimes we feel like in our spiritual lives we are we're like we're on the right track and we're just kind of doing we're doing we're growing kind of gradually closer to God but you know fundamentally we feel like we're on the right track. Sometimes there are these moments in our spiritual lives when things get a little unsettled and we have to start on a new course. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like maybe it's a vocational call or maybe it's a call into some new apostolic labor or maybe it's just something changes in our lives. And sometimes there are moments of you know, that what really kind of are discontinuous and upset what we're used to and call us to things that we're not comfortable with. 
And I see that all working out, all, all, I see all of that kind of in, in play in Aquinas' intellectual journey. First, you know, he begins with this kind of a, a very Aristotelian synthesis. Then things start, you know, he feels like, okay, here it is. He's got the synthesis all in place in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Then it gets a little unsettled at the end of the 1260s with, you know, the new translation of the De Anima. And then after the condemnation of intellectual determinism in 1270, which, by the way, is almost at the end and the height of his career, he has to rework it again. And so, but, but Aquinas, the theologian, is also Aquinas the saint. They're the same man. And so in humility, he continues to undertake this task and to grow closer to God by growing in theological wisdom. Well, that's yeah. Um, that I think I could I could end on that, um, and I think you've said it really well. We're bumping up on time here, so I'll let you. Uh, if there's anything else that you'd like to add, we did not get to spend uh, too much time on Henri de Lubac, but it's of course a very large book, um, so it's hard to have a conversation that touches on everything. So uh, I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to add about. Uh, about Henri de Lubac, or if you, we could just uh, call it a day right here. I, like I say, I think there's probably a lot to, uh, to chew on from this conversation. Sure. So I'd like to throw out something, if I may, about de Lubac, because I think, I think de Lubac too is a very, is, is a figure that we can spend a lot of time with who, who really approached the study of theology in a similar way to Aquinas. Um, de Lubac saw the study of theology very much as, I think, a spiritual endeavor and approached it from within the faith of the church, from within, you know, growth and growing closer to Christ. When we approach the resource monk figures, it's very common You hear, okay, so they're going back to Bible, the fathers, and liturgy, and they're trying to overcome deviations that arose over the course of the, especially the early modern period in theology. They're kind of like leapfrog back over those to the original sources. And that's true for any number of resource monk theologians, but it's not entirely true for de Lubac. De Lubac stands out among the resource monk theologians because he tried to work with the whole of the theological tradition. And, and so a lot of his recovery isn't restricted to the Bible, the Fathers, or the liturgy, but it involves the medievals, and it involves long-lost early moderns as well. Mm. Um, and so I think what de Lubac is trying to do is very similar to what Aquinas is trying to do in having this holistic approach to using everything that's available to pursue a deeper understanding of the wisdom of God. And so instead of seeing sort of Thomism, and resource theology as these polemical adversaries, I think if we take Aquinas's and de Lubac's general outlook on theology to heart, what that challenges us to do is to do theology with Christian charity towards every side in the theological debate, so that through a kind of generous consideration of all the available sources, we ourselves will grow in wisdom and we ourselves will grow in charity in the study of theology. And so I don't, I don't think de Lubac, if he were with us on, on, on this plane of existence right now, I don't think he would want us to be rigid Lubacians any more than Aquinas would want us to be rigid Thomists. I think that both of them would want us to continue the work in our own lives that they pursued throughout the course of their own lives. Um, and that was really the animus behind the composition of this book for me. We've got the Neo-Thomists versus the Lubachians, and sometimes it looks like a theological war. But I wanted to go back to see how Aquinas charitably, synthetically, um, and spiritually worked through tradition as he received it to achieve some kind of reconciliation in his own life. I wanted to look at how de Lubac in many ways did something similar, and I wanted to propose a, a potential resolution to the nature-grace debate that would push us here today to draw upon the fruits, especially of Aquinas' synthesis, so that we can move past the loggerheads that we so often arrive at in, 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 in theology so that we can get back on track with the point of theology, which is so that we can grow closer to God through, 
through growing in his theological wisdom and also so that the church can preach the mission, uh, can, can fulfill its mission by preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God in the world. My guest today has been Jacob Wood, uh, and he wrote To Stir a Restless Heart, Thomas Aquinas uh, de Lubach on Nature, Grace, and the Desire for God, and it's now in paperback. So compared to many of the books that I uh, review on this podcast, uh, this one is actually more affordable. Um, so I recommend uh, to anyone to go out and learn with Aquinas and de Lubach, and especially with Dr. Wood, um, about a little bit more about our own nature, God's grace, and helping us to see him. And uh, I've appreciated hearing your passion um, and and hearing your own uh, sort of um, your own animus, your own desire for God um, as it was shaped and formed in, in the reading with these uh, great luminaries. So thank you, Dr. Wood. Thank you. This has been a, a history of Christian theology. My name is Chad Kim, and I interviewed Dr. Wood on To Stir a Restless Heart. Uh, please rate us, review us on iTunes, um, and uh, get to like us on Facebook. And uh, we're happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening.